Welcome to Healthy Living, Healthy Planet Radio, sponsored by EarthX, the world's largest environmental experience, and also sponsored by Natural Awakenings Magazine. Live your healthiest life on a healthier planet. Now here's your host, Bernice Butler. Welcome to Healthy Living, Healthy Planet Radio today. We are now in our third season, and we remain more excited than ever to continue to help you explore and understand the unbreakable relationship between your health and the health of the planet. Here we look at the hottest topics related to our environment and its sustainability and how they affect your health and wellness. Here, issues like climate change, plastic pollution, extreme weather events, and others will meet up with everyday impact like allergies and asthma, digestive issues and gut health, cancers, lung and heart issues and more. So listen in today as we interview experts for today's show on extreme weather events. And today we're going to be focusing in on cold snaps and cold weather. A study that I found recently stated that on average every year from 2000 to 2019, approximately 4 million deaths on average, occurred annually due to extreme cold, with approximately 19 to 20,000 of those being in the U.S. It says that years with heavy seasonal snow and extreme cold weather continue to occur with great frequency as the climate has changed. The frequency of extreme snowstorms in the eastern two-thirds of the United States has increased over the past century. Approximately twice as many extreme U.S. snowstorms occurred in the latter half of the 20th century than the first. And then there are the cold snaps or the cold waves. Now, cold wave is a weather phenomena that is distinguished by a cooling of the air, specifically as used by the U.S. National Weather Service. A cold wave is a rapid fall in temperature within a 24-hour period. Cold waves generally are capable of occurring at any geological location, and they're formed by large, cool air masses that accumulate over certain regions that are caused by movements of air stream, you know, like the weatherman tells us many times on TV. But extreme cold weather and cold snaps have numerous impacts that affect us all significantly. The health impacts of extreme cold weather appear, it seems, are primarily caused not so much by a single cold snap as they are a longer-term chronic exposure. Research indicates that those at risk are primarily either engaged in outdoor activity or are the elderly who are chronically exposed to colder indoor temperatures. There are a variety of transportation impacts due to cold weather. Diesel engines are stressed and often fuel gels in extreme cold weather impacting trucking and rail traffic. Rivers and lakes freeze, stopping barge and ship traffic, and subsequent ice jams threaten bridges and can close major highways. And sheer cold temperatures stress metal bridge structures. Cold temperatures also impact our agriculture, and those impacts frequently are discussed in terms of frost and freeze impacts on early or late growing season. Absolute temperature and duration of extreme cold can have devastating effects on trees and winter crops. Unexpected drops in temperatures often cause plants to die, especially when blooms come early. And while crops have different levels of hardiness and cold tolerance, 
cold weather can still affect plants in the following ways. That is, water can freeze inside the plant cells, causing the plant to expand and destroy the plant from the inside. And this can cause plants to wilt even after the cold, frosty weather is concluded. And this can and does have great impact on our food supply, our food availability, and cost. In past cold snaps, destruction of over billions of the citrus crops in Florida and Louisiana and Tennessee have occurred. As well, prolonged cold snaps can impact livestock that's not protected from those frigid temperatures. And then there's energy consumption, which rises significantly during extreme cold weathers. In recent winters, additional energy consumption costs have been over $5 billion. And this includes increased cost of electricity, fuel oil, and coal, as well as the effects on our power grids. Cold temperatures also can cause significant ground freezing problems, especially if there's little snow cover. Buried pipes burst, causing massive ice problems and loss of water pressure in metropolitan areas, as well as at my house, we had broken pipes. And this can pose a variety of public health and public safety problems. One case of a broken water main recently in Denver, Colorado, forced the entire evacuation in sub-zero temperatures medically fragile patients of a veterans hospital. And other cases of broken water mains have shut down subway systems as well as financial centers. And schools often close during extreme cold snaps to protect the safety of children who otherwise might need to wait for school buses. Over the past four decades, satellite records have shown how increasing global temperatures have had a profound effect on the Arctic. And then scientists found that heating in the region ultimately disturbed the circular pattern of winds known as the polar vortex. And this allowed winter weather to flow down to the U.S. And the authors say that this warming will see more winters in some locations or more harsh winters in some locations. And here today to help us explore and understand this some more is the lead author of this study, and that is Judah Cohen. Judah Cohen is with the Atmospheric and Environmental Research Company. Dr. Cohen is Director of Seasonal Forecasting, and he is the Principal Scientist at Atmospheric and Environmental Research, which we will call AER. And they are a weather risk company that helps government agencies better anticipate and manage climate and weather-related risk. Customers of AER include NOAA, NASA, and the Department of Defense, all relying on AER scientists like Dr. Judah Cohen. Judah has previously spent two years as a National Research Council Fellow at the NASA Goddard Institute for Space Studies, and he spent two years as a research scientist at MIT's Parsons Laboratory. He received his PhD in Atmospheric Sciences from Columbia University, and he currently holds a research affiliate appointment in the Civil and Environmental Engineering Department at MIT. Judah's research on climate prediction is highlighted as breakthrough technology on the National Science Foundation website, and he has published over 80 articles in journals and other publications. Thank you so much, Judah, for being with us today, and have I got all that right? 
Well, it's a pleasure to join you, Bernice. And yes, thank you for that very kind introduction. We want to start us off, Judah, by explaining to us how one defines extreme cold in all its contours. And then what is the difference between extreme cold and cold snaps? I think how extreme cold in the meteorological community, you know, weather scientists, is a bit subjective, but tends to be uh, at the very low end of the distribution of temperatures that a certain region experiences, whether it's, you know, the bottom 5% of temperatures or bottom 10%, I think, you know, maybe to the bottom quarter. But uh, I'd say it, the most common definition, I think, is basically the bottom 5% of the temperatures that are experienced at a certain location. So, you, oh. know, you don't take Dallas's temperature and say when it's as cold as Minneapolis. <laughs> but relatively, you know, Dallas temperatures relative to Dallas, uh, you know, um, averages. So, when, so, like, yeah, obviously, last February, you were seeing very extreme temperatures and certainly probably the bottom 5 or even 1%. Uh, you know, observed throughout the record. So that's typically what would be considered an extreme cold event. Indeed. A few weeks ago or last week when we were talking about extreme heat, they made that point to us, too, that it's all relative depending on the region. Because what we consider very cold here might not be that cold to you in Boston or people in Alaska or what have you. Right. And then when it comes to health, it's what you're used to is what's most important. I mean, obviously, the the residents of Minneapolis are much more used to, and, and the city, you know, and infrastructure can handle, again, what's not necessarily extreme cold for them, but would be extreme cold for Texas. So extreme cold and cold snaps. I guess the snap or cold wave, as you scientists call it, it's like quicker and maybe it can be followed by heat, or what's the difference there? Yeah, so I think it's based on the duration. A cold snap tends to be a day or two. Um, and it's really the longer duration cold snaps that have the largest impact on the health, you know, maybe the morbidity. You know, there was a recent study that showed that those long duration cold snaps actually can be more deadly than even than heat waves. The length is very important. Yeah, I saw that in my research for this segment, and I was surprised. The cold has done more devastation than the heat waves. Hmm, interesting. And we just got one more minute before we go to break. And I want to talk a lot about your recent article, which is apparently very groundbreaking and certainly eye-opening for me in terms of what's caused by a lot of this. I think it's eye-opening for a lot of people, too, as we heard during our last political cycle that since it was so cold, global warming must be a fake. But we're going to go ahead and go to break right now. And so we'll start in with you right after the break so you can really help us unpack some of the causes and just help us get a deeper understanding of this. We'll be right back on the other side with Judah Cohen, and he's going to help make us smarter. And he's with the Atmospheric and Environmental Research Institute. And they do a lot of these studies, and they are the ones who help inform our national weather organizations as to the risk and some of the science behind all of this. Thank you. We'll be right back on the other side. We want to give a shout out now to our sponsors. That is Natural Awakenings, Dallas-Fort Worth Magazine, the Green, Healthy, and Sustainable Living Authority for the DFW Metroplex and North Texas communities. Print issues of Natural Awakenings can be found in all Whole Foods markets, natural grocers, central markets, sunflower shops, and many, many other locations, as well as available free for download online at NADallas.com. Check them out. Our other sponsors, North Haven Gardens, 
serving the Metroplex since 1951, the most respected horticultural establishment in North Texas, offering gardening and plant education, concierge services, DIY classes, gifts, and more. And we're told the best Christmas trees in Texas. Check them out at nhg.com. And our other sponsor is Lynn Dental Care, practicing dentistry for over 38 years with a holistic approach, non-mercury, looking at the whole body, specializing in periodontics. Dr. Lynn is board certified by the International Academy of Oral Medicine and Toxicology. Check them out at lynndentalcare.com. Thank you, sponsors. Welcome back to Healthy Living, Healthy Planet Radio. To today's show, an extreme weather event focusing in on cold snaps and extreme cold weather. And we are back with Judah Cohen with the Atmospheric and Environmental Research Company. He is a scientist with them, and he is director of seasonal forecasting and their principal scientist. So again, thank you for being with us. Judah, we want to go back and talk about the recent article that you wrote in which you are the lead author. And there you mentioned that the moisture in the summer can be a predictor for harsher winter conditions. Can you elaborate on this and help us understand how heat and moisture bring about colder weather? Because it's not intuitive. Right. So, um, yeah, first I would say, uh, you know, so with the Texas cold, well, I, you know, I thought the paper was important and, and timely because last, last year there was this debate, is climate change contributing to more extreme winter weather, such as the Texas cold wave? But until our paper, there was no study actually linking that type of event to uh, or climate change. So I think that that's important to, to set up. But what happens is um, in the Arctic, you get a lot of warming from the air is just warming, but also uh, moisture plays a part is that moisture is a greenhouse gas, just like carbon dioxide, maybe that people are more familiar with, and it traps the heat. So uh, more moisture in the Arctic traps the heat that goes into melting sea ice and warming in the Arctic Ocean in the spring and summer months. Um, the heat actually goes from the atmosphere into the ocean because the atmosphere is warmer than the ocean, and heat travels you know, down the temperature difference. So it goes from high to low temperature. But in the, in the winter, the heat um, goes the other way because the ocean is much warmer than the atmosphere, so it goes from the ocean into the atmosphere. Yeah, it rises right, up yeah. from the ocean. Okay. So that heat, that excess heat in the summer is pumped into the ocean and then acts like a reservoir of heat to heat the atmosphere back in, in the winter months. And because that heating is not... Uh, homogeneous across the Arctic, it's actually, there's a very important regional differences. It leads to, and it gets a bit complicated, so I don't want to get too much into it, but it leads to bigger waves. <laughs> uh, and you can just think a bigger wave has uh, more energy. We all know that from going to the ocean. And in short, our paper is saying that because these waves become more energetic, they can lead to more extreme weather. And well, what happens is those waves, and not to get too complicated, but if they start typically over Eurasia, and this is where the polar vortex comes into play, that energy kind of escapes Eurasia towards the polar vortex. Polar vortex acts, acts like a reflecting surface, so it like kind of boomerangs off the polar vortex and heads towards North America. It energizes the waves across North America, and that's when you get more extreme winter weathers. And, you know, a great example of that was obviously the Texas coal wave. So I like to kind of 
summarize or kind of you know simplify that Eurasia sneezes in North America catches a cold. What is Eurasia? Tell us some of the countries so we recognize what you mean when you say yeah, Eurasia. So, uh, you know, Europe is to the west, and you know Russia takes a very large part of the east, okay. China. Okay. Um, since Eura- you know, the Eurasian continent is the biggest continent of the whole globe, okay. it actually is associated with the biggest wave. So it really is the most influential. You know, it is the biggest player, I think, in, the, I, in my opinion, I think, but I think most people would agree, it is the most influential player in the atmospheric circulation. Okay. Now, explain really briefly what you mean polar vortex, because many of us, most of us hear that from the weatherman. We don't necessarily <laughs> understand it. But tell us about the polar vortex and all yeah. of this. Yeah, so the polar vortex, you know, just definition is, is an area of low pressure. It sits right over the North Pole. Now, it's not, you know, near the surface, but it's actually 10, 15 miles above the surface. So even higher than, uh, than the way the jets fly. Oh, and okay. Just like every low pressure in the northern hemisphere, the, the winds circulate around low pressure from counterclockwise and typically from west to east. And I like to use the analogy that pole vortex can be thought of as a top. So typically it's very fast rotation, you know, quiet. It sits, it's like perched in one spot right over the North Pole and keeps all the cold air with it, like kind of close, close, you know, to the vest, you know, close to the chest. Similar to like an ice skater that's spinning rapidly tends to keep its hands, you know, crossed across the chest. Same thing, the pole vortex spins very fast, keeps all the cold air with it over the Arctic, and it's much milder uh, to the south across the mid-latitudes, you know, the the most, uh, the the population lies in the northern hemisphere. That's the typical state, but then occasionally the polar vortex gets disrupted. Uh, so you could think of it uh, like that again, going back to the top, it starts to wobble. You know, so like uh, I was talking a little bit about energy, but so the energy kind of bounces off the polar vortex, bangs on it, like that banging on the top, and it starts to wobble and meander. And where the polar vortex goes, so goes the cold air, and that's when you tend to get these cold air outbreaks these extreme cold events that, you know, we discussed in the last segment. So that's why the po- I, mean, I think the community has really didn't fully appreciate the, the association of the behavior of the polar vortex and our winter weather. But I think it's, uh, we're starting to really uh, fully appreciate uh, how important and, and that can, how strong that connection is between the polar vortex and its behavior and our winter weather. The stronger the polar vortex, the more likely we have mild weather. The weaker or kind of this more wobbly, meandering behavior of the polar vortex, we tend to get more severe winter weather, including cold air outbreaks and, and disruptive snowstorms. Sounds like from your description that the polar vortex is something like maybe a tornado. I mean, yeah, I mean, any low pressure. I mean, you know, I, I'm not that crazy about using analogy. I mean, you know, maybe you could, I don't want to say it's a hurricane in the stratosphere. <laughs> As I think it kind of may give the wrong impression, but it's an area of low pressure. I mean, all our, most of our, all our storms are really, you know, low pressure. Uh, you know, you get, uh, our big winter storms are low pressure. The tropical storms, hurricanes are low pressure. Uh, you can actually have high pressure tornadoes, but <laughs> they tend to be also associated with lower pressure. Um, so, and so we have, you can think of the atmosphere as two layers. You have the troposphere, that's where we live, that's where the jets fly. We have the, maybe people familiar with the jet stream that moves the weather systems along. That's all in that bottom layer of the troposphere. And then the layer above that is the stratosphere, and that's where the polar vortex resides. And I guess we didn't fully appreciate, but there's a very strong connection between how the polar vortex behaves and the jet stream, which is really key to our weather systems. 
Um, I think a lot of us understand or know about the jet stream. I guess I from living in South Florida. And that's that stream that goes along in the ocean that comes close to land or not, and it warms it up. So I just made it clear that that's the Gulf Stream. I think I think you're Gulf discussing. Stream. Okay. Yeah. So I mean, it's also a stream. <laughs> that's you know, something that's keeping the It's a stream of fluid. So you have a Gulf Stream. It's a stream of fluid in the ocean. The jet stream is a stream of fluid in the atmosphere. The atmosphere is a fluid as well. And then okay. you have the polar vortex. You can think okay. of it as a stream, a jet stream. You know, a stream of fast flowing air in the stratosphere. They're all called streams. They're all the kind of this jet of fast-moving okay. fluid. Kind of like the water, but this one's in the air, and it's cold. Yeah, yeah. Well, it's like a boundary. So the cold air is on the, always on the north side the- on, of those streams. So the, the cold air is north of the jet okay. stream. Um, in, with the polar vortex, there's also this jet. We call it a polar night jet. But on the north side with the cold air, on the south side is the warm air. So when the polar vortex is strong, there's very li- little mixing of air masses. So the cold stays up north, and the Warm air stays to the south, and then we have more typical or mild weather. And when um, there's more vig- when the polar vortex weakens, you get much more vigorous mixing of air masses. So typically, air that's over Alaska will head south towards, let's say, Dallas, like we saw last winter. And air that's typically over Hawaii heads into Alaska. So we get this, you know, kind of topsy turvy, you know, kind of features to the atmosphere, and that's why you get this very extreme weather. So does that mean that South Florida? could have ice and snow at some point yeah. due to some of all of this climate change confusion? Yeah, I mean, it can. So, yeah, again, when the polar vortex disrupts, places that not don't typically get wintry weather, cold and snow, just like happened in Texas, you know, it could happen in other locations. So, you know, it's usually different places, different times. So last year, you know, Texas was unfortunate as a place that got the brunt of it. But there are other times, certainly in 2009-10, I think in 2010-11, we also had these polar vortex disruption, and actually Florida got hit, and there was cold, and you know iguanas were dropping out of the trees and things like that. So it's when you get these disruptions or weakenings of the polar vortex, then places that typically we think of as more mild get this, you know, wintry weather and you know wreaks havoc on the wildlife. You know, manatees freeze when they when it comes to Florida, um, and so you know really wreaks havoc not only with humans but the wildlife too. You know, animals and and with the vegetation. Yeah, that's not even getting to our agriculture and our food supply. In the study, you said that one of the benefits of the study is that if you recognize the precursors that you've been talking about, and you know the conditions that are favorable for triggering these events, then you can extend your forecast lead time. And then, of course, looking at that from what you just talked about, does that mean they can forecast a hurricane? And they can forecast when we're going to have, you know, bad weather, freezing weather, rain. Would we, should we, might we be able to forecast these events like we had last February? And the same thing with South Florida. Would they be able to forecast so that they can go cover up or some kind of way, take care of the orange crops or something? Right. Yeah. So, yeah. So, I mean, one of the benefits that we argued of the paper was it would extend the lead time. So I think with Texas, maybe had about a week or so. Uh-huh. I was actually kind of trying to, I was warning, I have a blog and I was warning people, you know, even early in the end of January and people did write back to me afterwards saying, you know, you're, what you're giving warning helped us prepare. And we were much better prepared than our neighbors were during the Texas freeze. So yes, uh, the hope is to extend the lead time to give, you know, uh, decision makers time to prepare the, you know, the, the residents for some, uh, you know, extreme winter weather. We're going to go to break, but we're going to come right back on the other side of that with more of this interesting conversation. 
And we've been with Judah Cohen with the Atmospheric and Environmental Research Company. And again, he'll be right back with us after the break to tell us more about this. Thank you, Judah. Welcome back to Healthy Living, Healthy Planet Radio. To today's show, an extreme weather event focusing on cold snaps and extreme cold weather. And we are back with Dr. Judah Cohen with Atmospheric and Environmental Research Company, and he is making us smarter about extreme weather. Thank you again. Before the break, Judah, we were talking about forewarnings, knowing how far in advance we can tell these things. Are we able to know what week or two in advance, and are we able at this point yet to know just how devastating the cold is going to be? So I think our lead time is about a week, maybe under the best of circumstances, out to two weeks. Yeah, so I mean, one, you know, one, again, uh, benefit we thought of our research was to extend that lead time. Um, it, you know, it's certainly the more time that warning that a certain location is given, uh, you know, better for them to prepare. Again, I, you know, it, the devil's in the details. So, yeah. you know, <laughs> knowing the exact, you know, so just saying, I mean, it's helpful to say everywhere east of the Rockies is going to be cold, but I don't know that, you know, how many people are going to prepare. And, you know, so it's still, it's early. I mean, this is very early in this research, right? I mean, our okay. paper is really the first, but I do think there's the potential to give maybe a multi-week lead time to more specified regions, like, you know, let's say Texas or Florida uh, that aren't prepared for the cold to say, you know, you have extreme winter weather coming. At least there's an elevated risk of it. Uh, so maybe, you know, you should prepare and get the citizens, residents prepared. And that leads me to two other what if or are we going to see questions. The first one being, I gather from your research and other things that I've read, is that we can all, not just here in the U.S., but across the globe, expect more of the extreme cold weather events as well due to global warming. Yeah, so, you know, my team counterintuitive. How could climate change or global warming lead to extreme winter weather? And our paper said, yeah, it can. Uh, I think one important also takeaway from the, from the study was that I think people, you know, a lot of scientists thought climate change is a very linear idea. Global warming will lead to milder winters, less snowfall, and, and that's it, right? Uh, it wasn't more complex than that. Our paper says, Yes, that is an important factor. I mean, the oceans are warming very rapidly. That'll lead to milder winters, less snowfall. But there are other factors that we hadn't considered 10 years ago that these changes in the Arctic, as we discussed earlier, can lead to more disruption of the polar vortex. And we all, you know, everybody agrees that when the polar vortex is weaker or disrupted, there's an elevated risk or higher probability of getting more severe winter weather extreme cold and extreme snow. And, you know, again, that last February freeze in Texas was a great example. Not only was there this extreme cold, but there was also, like, unprecedented amounts of snow across the state of Texas. You know, so you got this, you know, this double whammy, this one-two punch of both cold and snow. I think that really contributed to the harshness of the condition. Indeed. That being the case, should North Texas and other areas be preparing for uncharacteristic winter conditions now? And if so... What areas should be preparing? Yes, yeah, so, you know, I guess um, my thing was that I, I didn't want people could say, you know, what is, is, we're going to get warmer, 
Let's focus on the summertime extremes, more heat, maybe more hurricanes. Let's ignore, let's move the money away from building resiliency towards winter extremes. Let's put it all to summer streams. And I guess, you know, one, one takeaway from the paper was maybe not so fast. That may not be such a great idea because you're really leaving yourself, leaving yourself vulnerable to extreme winter weather. I mean, it's hard to know, you know, uh, yeah. you know how it will. I don't, I don't think it will increase, but I think it's not disappearing as fast as the community, the climate community had predicted or anticipated. So, you know, hold off on saying, okay, we don't need to put any more money into, you know, building resiliency or, you know, in, uh, fortifying ourselves against extreme winter weather. And I think, like, the, the energy uh, sector there in Texas is actually trying to prepare more for winter weather. And, you know, they kind of ignored it for the past decade or so, you know, and, and certainly contributed to the devastating consequences of last winter. Indeed. You don't have to make us here in North Texas <laughs> believe. My pipe bursted. I thought I was right. done with it. The sun was shining, and I was sitting at my desk, and all of a sudden I heard this noise. And I knew what it was when I heard it. Like, oh, I thought I had escaped. And and I don't even remember the billions of dollars of damage. And and I go to dinner parties and luncheons and people are talking about the generators they're going to get or the generators they got as a result of that incident. Here in North Texas, I see more people making changes in their lives and building in more resiliency due to that extreme cold weather event than I do as a result of maybe heat or other events. Yeah, no, and the irony is that Texas, that's known for hurricanes and heat, you know, one of the, maybe possibly one of the top natural disasters was cold and snow. So, <laughs> a bit of irony there. And again, when it comes to climate change, it's a global problem. It's not just one person's problem. So the things we talk about here are happening to people just like us all across the globe. And that's the point I really want to get over. But with that being said, Judah, are you seeing anything in recently past months with weather over in Asia that might give us an insight as to what we are up for this winter? Yeah, so... um the predictors that I, that we look at uh, are snow cover across Eurasia in the fall months and Arctic sea ice also in the fall months. So when, when the snow cover is more extensive than normal, we, that, that's an indication of a more severe winter weather in the eastern United States. When sea ice is low, that's also an indicator of maybe more severe winter weather. Sea ice has done something very unusual this fall. It's really increased very rapidly and is getting on the low end of normal, which may sound still normal, but it's much higher than it has been in recent years. Again, so I think it has an ability to disrupt the polar vortex is less compared to other years. Snow cover is kind of near normal, so not a strong signal so far, but I'm keeping watching on it. I, I do think we're looking at a, a, um, a milder start to the winter in the eastern United States. Uh, you know, I've been saying for a while, I think December will be an overall mild month. I still, you know, looking for, uh, you know, kind of the disruption of the polar vortex. I think that's key uh, to, to the, that second half of the winter. I still think things will, you know, kind of favor that, but not a strong signal there. But, I, 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 but our, our for, winter forecast in general, I will say, is colder than, like, the forecast from the National Weather Services for the, for oh. the entire United States. Oh, Mostly okay. focused in the, uh, in the plains, so... It's maybe, uh, you know, I mean, not, not Texas, but I guess, but if it turns cold in the plains, I mean, like last year, it not, doesn't ha- obviously doesn't happen, but that does put Texas under <laughs> a little more risk because then it can just slide uh, south. And I, yeah. I guess, too, I'm hearing that we should not let 
the mild beginning of the winter lull us. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, well, that's a great uh, example uh, of what happened from last winter. I mean, you know, December, in December, January weren't terribly cold. But when the cold came in February, it really packed a wallop <laughs> and, and, you know, and really colored the entire winter in people's minds. And it's really Indeed. the extreme event that people remember, you know. And that is as it should be, because I think it helps to reinforce for many that climate change is real and it's upon us and that it is going to cause a lot more unforeseen disruptions and, yeah, and, and impact on our lives. Yeah, and I like the term weather whiplash, which is kind of being used a little more also in the media, where you get in this kind of a windshield effect where you go very rapidly, you transition very rapidly from extremes, from warm extremes to cold extremes, from, you know, wet extremes to dry extremes. I, you know, I say look for that this winter. I think, you know, the kind of the weather whiplash is the thing I'm most confident in predicting. And that's interesting, and perhaps the local weather people need to use that term more, too. Because I remember it's maybe been about five to six years ago here in North Texas when we had a very devastating and lethal tornado on Christmas Day that killed nine people. The last time my house, we had, a, you know, at 2.30 a.m., we had thunderstorms, lightning, vivid lightning, very loud thunder, hail. I mean, that is really incredible to get that in November at night in, in Boston. So it seems like the system is more energetic. And when you have more Indeed. energy, I do think, it, you know, it's primed for, for more extreme weather. Judah, we just have one minute left to spend time with you. The last word for you is what do you think people can do to prepare or to help drive solutions? What can people do? Yeah, it's a, you know, it's a difficult problem. I mean, CO2 is, is in the air for a long time. So uh, it'll take, it's a slow process. And again, it's not really my expertise, but I think everything we can do to lessen the consumption of, of fossil fuel, you know, maybe drive a little less the car, uh, you know, maybe not, you know, uh, lower the thermostat or raise it in the summer. All these things can help. Um, but again, you know, it's not my expertise, but I, I think if we can uh, lessen, uh, you know, again, our consumption of fossil fuel, that'd be great. I think we're going to have to adapt. Uh, I don't think we're going to solve it all that quickly, and certainly, uh, you know, what people can do to adapt to a cli change of climate is going to be very, very important. Indeed, and I like that you said that because that's something that we don't hear very often, but it needs to enter the conversation simultaneously with making less impact on the climate. But that's also to bump up, amp up our adaptation to make ourselves and our lives more resilient. Thank you so much. We have been with Dr. Judah Cohen with the Atmospheric and Environmental Research Company, and he has truly made us much smarter these few minutes about the environmental impacts and what causes our extreme cold weather and cold snaps. Thank well, you, Judah. We really appreciate you being with us It was, it was a pleasure. Thank you very much, Bernie. Thank you. And we want to give a shout out now to our sponsors. That is Natural Awakenings, Dallas-Fort Worth Magazine, the Green, Healthy, and Sustainable Living Authority for the DFW Metroplex and North Texas communities. Print issues of Natural Awakenings can be found in all Whole Foods markets, natural grocers, central markets, sunflower shops, and many, many other locations, as well as available free for download at nadallas.com. Our other sponsor is North Haven Gardens, serving the Metroplex since 1951, the most respected horticultural establishment in North Texas, offering gardening, plant education, concierge services, and we're told the best Christmas trees in Texas. Check them out at NHG.com. 
and our other sponsor is Lynn Dental Care, practicing dentistry for over 38 years with a holistic approach, non-mercury, looking at the whole body. Check them out at lynndentalcare.com. Thank you, sponsors. Welcome back to Healthy Living, Healthy Planet Radio to today's show on extreme weather events, extreme cold, and cold snaps is what we're focusing on. And we've been talking before now about the environmental scientific part of extreme weather, and now we want to turn to a more of an emphasis on the health impacts. While infrastructure, particularly our transport systems, are likely to be disrupted by snow and ice, And that creates some difficulties for people, patients, and those in need of health. The impacts on health service arising from cold waves increases at every level, and there are untold health impacts. And here to talk to us just a little bit more about this is Lynn McWright and Teresa Walding with Advancing Nurse Coaching. And they both are registered nurses and certified nurse coaches with many, many years of experience. And they're going to help us understand this a little bit more in terms of the health impacts of extreme cold weather. So starting with you two ladies, let's start with you, Lynn, and then Teresa can join in. What are the effects of cold weather on the human body? Well, I want to say first that human beings are naturally resilient. That's why we're actually still on the planet and that we live everywhere from the Arctic to the, the equator. And it's, it's just um, that we have the, the adaptability that no other species has. We do have, of course, um, human bodies. And as such, a lot of attention has, has been focused on things like, just for example, frostbite. If people are out in the outdoors, especially during the winter, they need to be aware of their fingers and toes. Those are are the most dangerous areas of uh, concern. Actually, the very first nurse, Florence Nightingale, who uh, developed our profession 150 years ago, was very environmentally conscious and did a lot of work with statistics to show that different conditions would benefit the human body. For example, just such simple things we consider now as fresh air, bringing air into the hospital rooms, fresh air into the hospital rooms. Another thing that Teresa and I were talking about recently is hydration and how very important it is to continue to take in water Uh, especially in the summertime, we're accustomed to that. But in the wintertime, people may not notice that they actually are thirsty. And we need to to continue to be aware of that. We need as much water in the wintertime as we do in the summertime. Interesting point, because like you said, there's there's these things that are out there we just tend not to think about because winter is associated with precipitation, ice, snow, what have you think. Who thinks of water during the the wintertime? Let me ask you something briefly, then I want to move on to Teresa. Frostbite. Is it conceivable that, because I'm hearing that people can get frostbite and they may not know it or be aware of it? Can you just talk to that a little bit? 
Well, that's absolutely true because the feeling of the, the sensitivity in the extremities is reduced when, when freezing temperatures o- occur. That's something that can really sneak up on you. Let me ask you, Teresa, though, are there any long-term, perhaps, but unknown health impacts that are a direct result of extreme cold? Well, what Lynn was talking about with the frostbite, you know, once the extremities start warming up, you know, that's, that's when you notice the effects of what's been happening. Kind of like when the pipes bust Exactly. Up. Yeah, that's right. And, yeah. and so those, that, that can be a long-term effect. I mean, after, after the, the tissue dies, you, you know, they do what they call debriding and try to save as much of the tissue as they can. And people do lose fingers and toes to frostbite. So that is one long-term um, effect of cold. You know, and, and when you live in a really cold environment, you're probably more aware of it than we were in Texas when, you know, we were in the the polar vortex and experienced, you know, ice and cold. And, you know, many people here were not prepared for that. So there was a lot of, of cold injury um, just because people had no heat and water froze. And so, you know, my husband being in the Army, uh, he's like, as soon as he heard about it, we filled up bathtubs to flush the toilet. So there's things like that. Right. And I think, too, like you said, it's those residual effects that apparently are causing all these deaths. Because as we noted at the top of the program, there are actually more deaths due to extreme cold and heat. And nobody ever thinks about that. But it's like I mentioned to earlier, even with the transportation system, with water freezing, And it's just those dominoes that continue to occur. Now, let me ask you about this, both you and then we'll move back to Lynn on this. Can you tell us a little bit about the resilience paradigm and how mental and physical resilience can help everyday people in their ordinary lives get through the difficult impacts of extreme cold? You know, what's coming to mind to me right now is just that we had healthcare workers who were working overtime because their colleagues could not actually navigate into the hospital systems to take their usual shift. And the, the weight of all of that, of course, you know, fell on the people who were working that day, that evening. And it, we had to come up to, to the, the bar had to be raised, the bar was raised, and we had to come up to that to be able to provide services. So some some of us within healthcare care call it the snow mageddon, and that was the extreme weather that that we experienced last winter. We've had um, a wonderful opportunity to offer the resilience principles now for five years, and what it really comes down to is uh, an inner knowing of our own innate health. And what we are realizing now, the pandemic in a way has been a real blessing for this, is that we can only rely on ourselves and our own knowledge about our own bodies and how best to take care of each one of us alone, solo, by ourselves. You know how your body works. I know how my body works. And for us to be able to pay attention to that and sit up and take notice, we're going to be the first ones to to have the warning signs about what is needed to take the next step. 
And for us to be able to be aware and be listening to our inner wisdom is the most important part of surviving on the planet now. It goes to that adaptation that Judah was talking about earlier. We've always had it, but it's never been more important than it is now. And I think the important point, too, is to remind people of it and to direct and guide them in that way. And Teresa, you want to weigh in on that? Yeah, so we, um, with the resilience principles that we um, share with our, our clients and um, colleagues, is that, you know, the internal wisdom is always there. Even when we think that we're broken or something is happening, we really want to know that we're going to be okay. And a lot of times people make bad decisions when they think something's going to happen based on how they think about it. And the reality is that we can be okay in our circumstance when we realize that we do know what to do. Like Lynn was talking about listening to our bodies. If we're cold, pay attention. If we're thirsty, pay attention. Do something at that moment. It's when we ignore the warning signs in our body that we put ourselves at risk sometimes because we don't pay, we worry about what's happening on the outside instead of what's happening on the inside and knowing that, you know, we do know how to take care of ourselves if we do listen to ourselves. It's about preparation as well. Let me yeah. ask you all one last question related to cold weather and health and the body, and then we're going to have to go and close out the show. Is there a particular body temperature or outside temperature at which it's totally dangerous maybe to go outside or to be in the cold without layers and layers and layers? I don't know. It's outside temperature. Well, it, it depends on, on how the human being is, is dressed. Okay. In Minneapolis, they had to close the schools, not because the, the um, weather was so bad, but that the kids could not stand outside waiting for the bus. So right. it, it wasn't the, the snow and, and the, the ice, but the cold temperatures that, that were endangering the health of the children. I guess it's like when we get the warnings in the summer, you know, it's going to be bad ozone. Don't go outside if you got asthma or what have you, that maybe there needs to be something of that nature too. Like it's going to be 20 below. Do not go outside without 50 layers on or something like that. Yeah, we in Texas, most people don't even have winter clothing, but they can be aware of how to layer and to wear um, something on their hands and, and cover their feet well. We appreciate you helping us understand a little bit more some of the health effects and bringing really this important information to us about resilience as it relates to mental and physical health and the impacts of extreme cold weather or impacts of any kind of extreme weather or any kind of life conditions. So thank you so much. We've been with Lynn McBride and Teresa Walding with Advancing Nurse Coaching. Thank you so much. You all have really helped us out. And thank you so much, audience, for listening in today to Healthy Living, Healthy Planet Radio. The conversation starts here, but our goal is for it to continue in your homes, in your social circles, your workplaces, at the water cooler, and in the grocery checkout line so that we can all work together to realize that healthy living is simply not possible without a healthy planet. Our culture is a result of a trillion tiny acts taken by billions of people every day, like yourself. And each of those tiny acts can seem insignificant, but all of them add up, one way or the other, to the change that we each live through. 
Thank you very much. This is your host, Bernice Butler. And join us again next week for more Healthy Living, Healthy Planet Radio. Thank you, audience.